assumptions that served you well when you were brand new, which is you own everything. That's how you learn the full, the mm. full scope of what you're doing. Those assumptions have to change if you're going to grow into a role of higher responsibility and be able to be strategic and be thinking at a level. You can't be hanging on to all the details and managing right. all these little things. On today's episode, we have Dr. Rachel Bishop, and Dr. Bishop is joining us on our Triple H series, The Habits and Hacks from Hopkins. Hi, Rachel. How are you doing? Good morning. I am doing well. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you, Dr. Bishop. I am so glad you joined us today because you are going to talk about a topic that everyone is hot about, and that is coaching. And I would love for you to start, if you would, by telling us about who you are here at Hopkins, a little bit of your history so people can see um, what a unique and um, interesting career path you're on right now. Thank you. You know, I'm actually new to the Hopkins team. I'm a faculty member on at the Wilmer Eye Institute. I'm an ophthalmologist. I joined in January, and I came from NIH, where I had been working for the past 14 years in clinical care ophthalmology and clinical research. I made this shift, actually, because I wanted to transition to part-time clinical care so that I could grow my coaching practice, sort of a second career branch. So that's what brought me to Hopkins. That's what I'm focusing on now when I'm not in clinic. I love it. And I just, you know, we were chatting a bit before the podcast, and I just think people's careers and their journeys are so interesting to me. So... Could you just briefly tell us, how does an ophthalmologist grow into coaching? What piqued your interest to want you to get the certificate in coaching that you got, I believe, from Georgetown University? Right, from Georgetown. Wow, what piqued my interest? I have to say, this interest is longstanding. I think the only way to, to be honest about it would be I tumbled into it. Mm. My, my first job out of college was as a platoon leader in the Army in the uh, 2nd Infantry Division in Korea and uh, met my unit and I had about 20 members of my platoon and they were young. I was pretty young and I realized that I just gravitated towards learning the stories of my team members, my platoon members, and seeing how I could help those who were young and figuring out their path. And I don't think it ever stopped. About 15 years ago, Right before I came to NIH, I realized I'd like to make this something I do more formally, but I knew that it wasn't really the right season of my life to do it. I mean, I was still very involved, fully involved with work and raising my family and so on. So it it had to sort of be on hold, but it's always been in the back of my mind that I wanted to spend time helping people achieve the goals thereafter, Mm. and sometimes that goal is just even defining the goal, what's right. the goal I'm after. So so I think I would had always done that naturally in my adult life, and I was quite impressed by the formal program at Georgetown, and there were other, of course, other certification programs, that tools I had been using and concepts that I had constructed on, you know, people's behavior, motivations, change, all this. There's such a developed field in this that I hadn't tapped into. It was sort of on-the-job training for me. So I really appreciated 
reading the books, hearing the instructors, engaging and practicing and learning how much, how many great models are out there for thinking and, and tools for working with, with clients in this area. So that was a terrific experience going through the certification training and then the follow-on coaching since then. Fascinating. I, I, I love the stories. Again, wow, uh, cool. Army platoon leader, mom, NIH, ophthalmologist, coaching. Sure, why not? I love hearing people how they, they meld the vocation with the avocation and it's and that passion um, for doing doing things and doing things your way. So I think it's really interesting. And why don't you start us off by telling in the audience now, let's let's kind of get get in our minds who we're talking to. We're say we're faculty members in academic healthcare medicine, maybe we're new to academic medicine, maybe we're new faculty members, newly minted MDs and PhDs, or we're mid-career and we've been promoted to associate professor or preparing to go to full professor, or maybe we're even later career faculty members and we're reaching the ends of our careers or the later stages and we're thinking about partial employment or partial retirement or maybe exploring some of those those passions and hobbies and things that we were, we were always interested in but couldn't do because we were busy seeing patients and writing grants and papers. So tell, tell us, what is coaching and how can we benefit from coaching? Sure, and you've actually laid out very common time points when people could engage coaching with, with benefit. But I, I do think it helps to start with just asking the question, what is coaching? We're very familiar with coaching like from sports teams, and that's not entirely different than the concept of coaching for personal growth. And I think of coaching as a process, and I think of it as one person helping another person or a team achieve their goals. What really defines coaching is that it's an inquiry-based process, and those questions that the coach asks helps the client arrive at insight. So in other words, the coach is working as a partner, really, with the client. They offer up observations and they offer different perspectives, but the client is really the one making the discoveries and sculpting that path that they're going to move into, the change they want to make or the insights they want to achieve. So this this relies on a premise, and this is one of the things I also like about coaching. It relies on the premise that the client really is well fortified to move forward in their life. But, but there's just this obstacle sometimes getting in the way. They see where they want to be. It's like they can see over that stream to the other side, but they're just not sure how to get there. And that's, that's a simple analogy, but I think it holds true for a lot of coaching. And the coach is able to help the client figure out how they're going to get over that stream to the other side. So it's, it's certainly a judgment-free zone. Many of us are in medicine and we understand the sacred, intimate space when you're sitting with a patient. There's no judgment. There's full confidentiality, and you are really there serving your patient. It's not so different than that, but the goal is that you're there serving your client towards achieving whatever it is that they're after. You know, and it can be a small thing, Kim. It can be, I just want to change a health habit. I want to start a new routine. I want to change a pattern of how I'm living my life. Or it can be global rethinking. I'm at a place in my life where this was what I wanted 20 years ago and I gunned for it and I got it. Now it's not as exciting as I thought it would be or I've grown and matured and I'm just ready for a new challenge and new learning. 
and gosh, how, how do I make that shift? What do I even want? I don't quite know what I want, but I know mm-hmm. I want something different. Mm-hmm. And just diving in and exploring that. Yeah. Now tell me how, how coaching differs from mentoring. Because you know across the country in North America, around the world, mentoring has been key on many, almost every institution I know. There's no one who's not said or acknowledge the fact that mentoring is critical to academic success and engagement and wellness and leadership development. Everyone knows about mentoring, all the publications. It's, it's firmly established. So I'm wondering, putting myself in the shoes of, say, a new faculty member who's saying, well, wait a minute, everybody's telling me I need a mentor and a mentor mentoring team and multiple mentors and peer mentors. Now I need a coach. What's the difference between a mentor and a coach? Well, that is a great question. I would start by saying there are a lot of similarities. So the goal of the mentor is to see their mentee succeed. And that is the same goal as, as the coach. But the, the difference is when the coach and the client sit together, they have created kind of a contract, like this is our goal, and been quite specific about it. And there's a deliberate wish for some kind of shift or change that you bring to that coaching engagement. With mentoring, I see that more as as a developmental assistance. In other words, I'm a junior faculty person and I am going to, this is like the fertilizer. These people are going to help me grow into this rich role that I have all these skills that I can bring into, but I might not be coming to the mentor with, there's this friction I have and I want to resolve it. I'm instead coming to the mentor with, here I am, I'm ready to go. (laughs) Can you help make sure I'm on the right track? Does that make sense, that distinction? Yeah, I I like the way you're you're putting that, the word developmental. So, although I'm sure somebody could say, well, coaching is developmental, but 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 what you said made me realize that, well, a mentor perhaps is professionally career-specific, in our context, academic health center, so research, education, clinical, project building, focused more on the career specifically, whereas maybe the coach is not as much developmental or developing as an academician. That could be part of it, but it's also maybe it sounds more personal to me, and it's broader because you said it could be something about home or personal life or getting, you, you gave the example of developing a fitness routine. Maybe you wouldn't want to, and I'm sure some mentors have developed into a, a relationship where you can have these personal personal conversations around, gosh, my grants are going gangbusters, my papers are great, my, my lab team is great, I, I wish I could just, you know, get in better cardiovascular conditioning. I'm sure there's a mentor who'd be like, well, actually, I got a great gym, and I can see how that might happen organically over time with a good mentor or mentoring teams. But it seems to me that a, a coach is more, maybe more personal and I would feel freer, I'm guessing. I think I would feel uh, almost safer. I don't want to see like it's unsafe, but I would feel safer with a coach maybe than a mentor who we have that kind of traditional relationship with a mentor as this senior person or people and, and we're trying to, you know, meet the bar and impress them and we're we're performing almost for them and for their approval. Whereas a coach might be has this unbiased, they don't have any stake in you 
getting a grant or paper because they're not on your grant or paper. So they're you're freer to be you. Yes. Well, that is right. And I've had mentees and, you know, all those personal comp- components come into it. But, you know, you're really pushing through this paper that they're going to publish or what have you. And But, but in the coaching arena, I would say it's a little different. You, you tend to bring something that you're wanting a shift in, a change. You're wanting, you're wanting some movement as opposed to just general career uh, development. And there is also, there is this sense when you're engaging with a a coach and a client working together, that might really be the only time, particularly with upper-level leadership, where people are quite developed in their careers and their lives are very full, that might be the only time in their week or their month where they are stopping everything else and focusing exclusively on thinking about what it is they're hoping Mm -hmm. to work on, to Mm -hmm. change, you know, looking critically at where they are, at some of the priorities they're working with now. Are those in coherence with their their values right now? Mm -hmm. You know, they they might be running so full throttle that they don't, they might mull on things and talk with their partner at dinner about things, but they might not actually really slow down everything else long enough to reflect deeply on, is this is this where I need to be going or that, that sort of dedicated time that's sort of special about that hour with your coach. And that's a little different than the mentoring engagement for sure. Great. All right. So we've talked about what is it, what's next on your uh, list today, Dr. Bishop. Yeah. So, you know, I think just a couple of examples help illustrate how, how coaching might work out, you know, say there's a faculty member who is, um, maybe mid-career, has a great clinical practice going on, a research uh, branch of their work, and they've been offered, um, maybe they've been offered a committee position, leading a committee in an area they're particularly interested in. You're you're in faculty development. Maybe it's the um, curriculum committee, and they really love teaching and want to do more of it, but their plate is totally full. So they're sitting there thinking, do I want to take this on? I, I just see that I'm almost... I'm almost at burnout with what I'm doing, but this is really interesting to me. You know, how am I going to resolve this? So, so what coaching is not is just asking advice. So if they're just asking their, their friend, colleague, loved one, hey, this is what's been offered to me. What do you think? And that person says back, oh, your plate's full. You shouldn't take it. Or, yeah, you've always wanted to. Go for it. You know, that's called advice. But it's quite different. That is not coaching. Coaching might, a coach might respond by starting with, you know, well, what about this committee position on the curriculum committee? What about that appeals to you? Mm. What's drawing you in? Mm. And then the person has to stop and think, huh, well, you know, I really love teaching. I value teaching. Okay, well, what about teaching? Like, what is it? And, and, you're, and you're kind of diving in a little. Okay, it's, you know, it's, it's developing people's potential. Okay, that's what you love. And then, you know, that can lead exploring what their top values, interests, priorities are right then. And then if you've been working with the client, you're, you're also entering that space of, well, what are you doing then that maybe isn't really matching up with those top needs right now? And as you work through this inquiry process, the, the client may come to the realization, 
hey, I'm sitting on this other committee that I joined five years ago, seven years ago. It was great at the time, but the pharmacy committee, I really wanted to be on it for these reasons. It's kind of stale now. I've been doing it. And there's this junior faculty member who's just joined who's on no committees. That would be a growth step for them. Maybe maybe they should take on the pharmacy committee and I take on the curriculum, you know. And this is this is kind of, uh, that's a simple example of, you know, a solution based to this problem. But it begins with exploring why does the person want to do this? What's getting in the way? How might they want to approach resolving this? So coaching, you know, it's not consulting. And I will say the clients who I've worked with who are in healthcare and leadership positions in healthcare, because I'm also in healthcare, sometimes the discussion gets to the point where they say, well, okay, Rachel, but what would you do? And and that's okay. You know, then I'll say, okay, I'm going to take off my coaching hat and put on my consulting hat, and I will offer some thoughts from perspectives of my own experience. Mm-hmm. But you're sort of making that distinction. You can, you can weave in some, uh, some kind of con- consulting thoughts, but that's different than coaching. It's also not therapy, mm-hmm. although it's very helpful and you're trying to get to the root motivations, maybe what's the fear, Why? Where, where did that fear come from because we want to change it. It's a forward-looking approach. You're not really going to spend a lot of your coaching time looking backward. Why did they become mm-hmm. fearful of standing up in a group and expressing themselves? It's important to acknowledge it, and it's important to explore that it exists. But the energy is spent moving forward. Okay, we're, we're accepting that this is a fear you have, and we're going to work on ways and strategies to overcome that. Whereas therapy would say, okay, I see you have this fear. Now let's go dig into your past and figure out why. Mm. And, and so that's a real distinction. Therapy is sort of backward-looking, and coaching is absolutely forward and movement um, looking, mm, I like I like that way of, of um, describing it. Back the the visual, the the perspective of looking over your shoulder versus looking ahead. I like that. Can you can yeah. you talk a little bit more about something that I've been thinking about lately in conversations with mid and later career faculty members? When you first just defined what coaching was for us, you said it's helping a person or a team accomplish their goal or their goals. And what if, what if a person, and you kind of alluded to this, isn't really quite sure of their goal or goals, and they just know, as you've also said, maybe they're a little bit stale, they're kind of bored, or they're not excited anymore about things, and you say, well, what do you want to do? And they're like, I don't know. I mean, this is all I've done my whole life. That What else can I do? I mean, this is, this is I think, a, an existential angst kind of a thing with a lot of people who think... I don't know who I am if I'm not doing fill in the blank, seeing patients, doing procedures, writing grants, uh, coaching junior faculty members. So when our identity, and if you, you've talked about values, when our whole identity, our master status, if you will, is wrapped up as being the professor of ophthalmology at the Wilmer Eye Institute at Johns Hopkins University, period, how can you... How can how do you help or coach a person to see a new goal if they don't even know what their goal is? They just know that I'm stuck here. I don't know. I don't know what my goal is. I, all I know is that I need something different. I can't believe you asked that because that is just that lands right in the middle of what I find most exciting. Ooh. That's so there. There's this whole area of 
life design, design thinking, and actually a fun book for people who find this topic interesting is, is called Design Your Life. These these two, Bill Burnett, Dave Evans at the Stanford School of Design have created a, a whole philosophy and, and process around trying to find what, you know, what your next interest might be or your first path out of college might be. I mean, they're at Stanford, so they work with a lot of students. But um, this is absolutely what is one of the fun projects in coaching because you do have to stop long enough and be willing to open your mind to look inside and say, first of all, what's not exciting about what I'm doing? But more interestingly, what's pulling me? And, and there is a process. I mean, through questions and through some brainstorming and through some exercises. And I will say, coaching, the most successful coaching is successful because clients are doing some work in between the coaching sessions. So I've had clients where really they don't have that much, they're not doing a lot of work between sessions and we still move forward. But the ones who I think make the biggest change and when you hear the word transformation, that's happening because they really invested time and make commitments after coaching session one things they're going to do between coaching session one and two, and so on. So the work you do at home and in between and the things you try on and the exercises that you're willing to engage with, that helps you move where you want to go. So if that project is, I'm stuck, I don't really know what I want, but I know I'm not getting that much joy and satisfaction anymore in what I'm doing, then we would begin by sort of clearing off the space, just just making a big wide open space and, and beginning to explore, well, what excites you? What interests you? What when are you feeling like you're in flow, like you're, you know, lost in something? And they can be bringing in music. They can be bringing in walking their dog. They can they can reveal that when they really have free time, they're like on a hack radio thing. It can be anything. And you begin to just let them open that space. And eventually, you actually hear a smile in their voice. And a lot of time we're on Zoom. I mean, you begin to see this person who you've only seen in this serious way. You begin to see this child's expression come out because eventually it does. Yeah. In all of us is this creative creature, is this, you know, enthusiasm. But you, you have to give it room. Transitions are one of my, are the, one of the areas I love working in the most. And you don't always know where you want to go. You just know you want to go somewhere. Yes. Oh, Dr. Bishop, I love that. And especially I want to um, amplify what you said. You called out Designing Your Life. The book is subtitled How to Build a Well-Lived Joyful Life. It's by Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. So I want to make sure people caught that great reference because that is a good book. I have read that. My dear friend Jennifer Haythornthwaite recommended that to me a couple years ago. And it's a great book. And I love that you like this whole transitions thing. And you're reminding me of so many examples. And one of the aha moments I had when I first got into this field called faculty development that I didn't even know was a field was when I had a conversation with a junior faculty member. And I was by then mid-career. And it was just how you described a, a joy, something in that's called, and I hate to say it this way, but it's kind of, there's a flat affect, dead eye kind of a look when you ask some people to describe what they're doing and she came to me for advice and she kind of went through the drills, almost kind of like a big inhale, like, 
here we go. This is what I do. And she started talking about blah, 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 blah. Her eyes were just kind of flat. I mean, very polite, nice. But as she started going into, and I can't remember what area, whatever it was, she became more animated. Her eyes got bigger. Her smile got more authentic. Her face just kind of lit up and her hands started gesticulating. And the pace of which she spoke was faster. And I just let her go and, you know, riff on all that she was talking about. And then she stopped and, and then she was like, so I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, I, I just met you, you know, 10, 15 minutes ago, but boy, oh boy, is it so clear to me that you are crazy passionate about this because you were off the wall. I wish I could have recorded you so you would have seen you were alive. Your eyes just boom, like flashlights out of your head. And she said, really? And I said, yes. So I love how you describe that process, Rachel, of giving a client the space. So we as faculty members can can take advantage of and leverage good coaching to just buy ourselves some free, safe space to explore parts of us that maybe we have kind of put in a corner or put in a box for now, thinking we'll get back to it later, or something we've never even yes. knew was part of us. So I love how yes. you're describing this process. And, and you know, it, p- picking up on what you just said, what, what, what frequently happens is that when, when you dig down into well, why isn't that part of that person's life now? Quite often, there are assumptions that someone is living with that, that I just say the word client because it's a short word and everybody knows what that means, the coachee that, that they're living with that is stopping them from engaging in that particular passion, if you will, because in their mind, A, what they're doing now doesn't have a place for B, what bring that passion. And when you dig into some of these assumptions, you end up realizing that there is a way to make things fit, that the assumptions are not really correct. It's not true that just because you're a super busy surgeon, you you know, you know can't exercise, you're too busy to exercise. That's an assumption you might have made, or you, or you might have made an assumption that because you've always had to be the person who sees through all those projects you start that you can't release any to anybody else mm. because, you know, you were raised full ownership, full responsibility for my patients, my projects. But as you move up in leadership, of course, you have to learn how to delegate and coach your own subordinates. You have to learn to let things go or you can't make room for the things that you're adding. So the assumptions that served you well when you were brand new, which is you own everything. That's how you learn the full, the mm. full scope of what you're doing. Those assumptions have to change if you're going to grow into a role of higher responsibility and be able to be strategic and be thinking at a level. You can't be hanging on to all the details and managing all these little things. And, you know, some of the excitement of coaching, well, in in healthcare is where I do the the most of this area, which is leadership development, is, is helping people define what they can still, what, what will serve them to still meet that passion of they seeing students, residents, fellows, seeing those that that group of, of of trainees develop, yet not having to be the ones doing all the implementation steps in, in the program. Mm. They, and and figuring out a new path where they can be less directly involved because actually they are more directly involved now with 
the strategic planning level things. Right. And this is why I, I'm so appreciative of what your office does, the faculty development. I actually think we sometimes miss opportunities to help faculty members grow into these higher levels of responsibility and quite exciting work. And sometimes I think people hold themselves back because they think, I couldn't handle any more. I'm barely mm. getting by as it is. But I, I do believe that if you thoughtfully examine what's on your plate and thoughtfully choose what you want to keep there and what you want to lose, and you, you can't make these shifts in a day. I mean, it takes some planning. You can actually direct your compass, you know, to, mm-hmm. to the way you're growing and, and make room for the things you want to grow into. Well, you're, you're, you know, you're reminding me of the other book, um, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And that's a book by Marshall Goldsmith. And it's a, it talks to exactly what you said, that we think, well, gosh, I'm, I'm successful. I've made it this far doing this and that. So I have to keep doing that. But you're right. That next level, leveling up requires a pivot, a shift, a recalibration. And, and you're right, some of that fear or anxiety about future fill-in-the-blank is because you're thinking, oh, my gosh, I mean, there's no way in God's green earth I could do that because this about, you know, bowled me over. But we, we sometimes, we, we are, we hem ourselves in with those, as you're saying, the assumptions of, well, this is how I got here by doing that. And so I'd have to do more of that, and I could never do that. Well, no. Or sometimes with leaders, we don't... We lack, Robin Ely talks about this, you know, not having a leadership identity. I don't, I don't want to be a leader like that. Are you kidding me? I would never want to have her life or his life. It's that, that failure to realize, well, you don't have to do leadership like they do leadership. And you don't have to, get, the next step doesn't necessarily require that you sacrifice or a sweat bullets and, you know, and practically kill yourself to get here. That it's not always, it's, a lot of, I guess I'm just saying, I'm re-saying what you're saying, is that those faulty assumptions, and that's why I think a coach would really help us more so than a, a confidant or a good friend or a partner or a mentor, because they give you that unbiased perspective. They don't know you, and so they won't necessarily feed, feed into your assumptions coming from someone who's like, oh, Kim, you could never do that. I know you. You're too compulsive with this. That would drive you nuts. Or a, a, a senior mentor saying, well, why would you want to do that? That's going to take you away from your research. And how are you going to get another RON if you're doing that? So th- those kinds of fear or blocks exist or may exist in other ways of ways we, we think about things. But whereas a coach, I'm you know excited about this because it is it is that unbiased, neutral person who will help you see change because they don't have a stake in it or you personally. That's the value to to me. It's like you don't have to impress your coach. They're not going to get any grant funding because of working with you. (laughs) They're not married to you or in your lab. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And, you know, you've mentioned you you mentioned something there. And I I don't want to overwhelm people with book, book titles, but I mean, if you're finding this topic interesting, there is this great book called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, and, and you may have no, uh, I don't know come across one. it. Jim Detmer, Diana Chapman, and they discuss um, what you touched on, which is being conscious, being deliberate about the kind of leader you want to be. And that means you're separating yourself from what you have seen in other leaders. Perhaps you're adopting certain things that 
you admired and you know there are certain things you definitely certain traits you don't want to emulate and you want to avoid those but this this idea of conscious leadership is is kind of making a commitment and exploring how you want to show up and everybody's different right so if you have certain gifts you're going to draw on those the next person has different gifts they're going to be very different they're going to have very different leadership styles and they're both going to be extremely effective because they are using you know their authentic selves to be to, to lead whatever their project is i've seen very quiet leaders whose teams would jump under a bus for them. Mm-hmm. And then I've seen loud, boisterous, like really fun-loving leaders, and they are great. So just, it's not that there's one way to be an effective leader, right. but being conscious and being deliberate about choosing how you how you want to show up, how you want to run your team is important. And the other thing that you touched on that um, I think is worth mentioning is uh, we were talking about sort of some of the inward work, inward exploration, like what are your assumptions and, you know, what's what's actually sounding exciting to you now? Where are you pulled now? That's the inward facing stuff. Some of the power of coaching is in the idea that sometimes very small outward changes, little steps lead to big change. I'm also thinking of like the tipping point from Malcolm Gladwell, but right. little steps can lead to big change. And and changing patterns and habits are things that are kind of interesting to think about. We A lot of what we do is just default behavior because we've always done it. And to change default behavior takes some conscious determination. And then people say it takes 30 days or it takes 60 days. But, but the point is after a certain amount of time, a habit can be changed and you have a new default. And a coach can be very helpful in helping a person kind of figure out, well, what, what little pattern do I want to change? And it might just be, Kim, it might be, I wanted to stop putting sugar in my coffee and thinking this just isn't good for me. But it took me a full month to finally enjoy coffee without sugar. That mm. is such a small, silly example. I didn't need a coach. But it's a small change and eventually became my new norm. The lifestyle things, I want to commit to some kind of exercise. I might just be committing to taking the steps instead of the elevator because that's as much commitment as I can make right now. But it is a commitment and it's a small change. And the thing is, it then leads to the next step and the next step. So coaches can help a client figure out what little steps are they wanting and willing to commit to towards the goal of what ends up being bigger movement. Yeah. Well, folks, I don't know about you, but I am so excited right now. I want to go out and get a coach, and I think Dr. Rachel <laughs> Bishop would be a great coach for you. And, Rachel, why don't you tell people how what's the best way to get in touch with you if they want to learn more about coaching or explore coaching with you? You can find me on – we're all available on, on Google, right, With, with mm-hmm. through Hopkins. Um, I have my, my own coaching uh, company, uh, Discover Works. I have a different company. We do immersion coaching where you go on site for three days, and that's sort of like exploring big life change stuff. You know, Curiosity Co-op is that one. You could look that up. But really, you can just send me, you can send me an email, and I'll say I'm very happy to just explore whether coaching seems, would seem to be a, a good path for a particular for a particular goal. I'm a little biased in that I find it's a good path for a lot of movement forward and change and growth, but it reached me anyway. I'm not I'm not hard to find, I don't think. I think your your email address is rbishop6 
Is that right? It is. It's R Bishop R B I S H O P six at J H M I dot edu. Well, folks, I again, I, I hope you share my um, enthusiasm and excitement about this topic. And you've been uh, learning from Dr. Rachel J. Bishop here at Johns Hopkins on the Triple H. Rachel, thank you so much. We really appreciate you. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun, and I wish good luck to all of your listeners who are wanting to make changes in their own lives. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.